Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Pim Fox, along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day, we bring you the most important, noteworthy, and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find the Bloomberg PL Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Bloomberg.com. Right now, there is a lot of focus on media companies, particularly as the shift uh, from cable networks to online advertising takes hold. And we are very lucky to have with us today Porter Bibb, managing partner at MediaTek Capital Partners in New York. He is better known as being the first publisher of Rolling Stone. He has been on both sides of the industry from the content side at Rolling Stone, as well as being an investment banker specializing in media, entertainment and technology ventures. Uh, Porter, thank Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, you know, after Time Warner reported earnings yesterday, uh, shares across the board of Walt Disney, 21st Century Fox, CBS, Viacom all fell because uh, Time Warner showed that they expect ad sales that were far below where analysts were expecting. A, a bit, yes. A bit. Well, yeah, they were a bit, yeah, but, the, yeah. but the trend that was already down. That's right. Uh, already ratcheted down. I'm wondering... In five years, do you think that these behemoths, Walt Disney, 21st Century Fox, et cetera, will all exist as independent companies? I think that's unlikely. Um, NBC already is not an independent company. ABC is already not an independent company. You have CBS uh, standing alone and, and uh, Fox. And Fox Fox is desperately trying to become a global media company with uh, the rest of, of Sky Broadcasting, which they're trying to acquire in the UK. So the answer is no, they're not going to be any more independent linear networks standing alone anymore. Uh, Porter, who are the big advertisers? Are they automobile companies? I mean, are they the ones that really power most of this ad revenue? Historically, that has been the case. It, it, it's uh, packaged goods uh, products like uh, Procter & Gamble or Gillette uh, and autos. But today, they are not the big advertisers. Big advertisers are uh, internet uh, companies like Trivago, uh, insurance companies, um, and pharmaceutical products and basically because the the little known secret is that the people who are watching linear television are Older. baby boomers and and beyond <laughs> and they're the, the prime prospects for all this pharma and the meds it's true whenever i watch certain shows with my husband and they have you know ad after ad of every disease you can think about i'm thinking maybe we're not the demographic they're trying to reach I, you know i'm, I'm i don't amazed. know why they have that golden retriever in every ad either but that's another <laughs> totally. story I, i'm waiting for congress to say uh, we can make a, a health program work if we just eliminate the, the the hundreds of millions of dollars that each pharma company is spending on on television advertising. Well, so let's talk about whether there is anything that could revive the ad sales for these companies, or is this just the beginning of an even more rapid decline? Well, it's it's a transition. It's not a decline. Advertising actually is up. The upfronts that, that um, the, the, the major networks have, have just uh, experienced uh, posted a, a low single-digit uh, uh, increase in terms of total advertising sold and, and also the, the cost per thousand, the rates that they're charging. The, the, the real message, though, is that those rates are 25 or 30% below what they were 
even five years ago. So uh, that's that's because the audience, the network audience of linear television networks is shrinking faster than the cable cutters are, are cutting out of uh, cable television, pay TV, and going to the internet. Uh, Porter, I want to just throw a couple of, of names at you and just get your thoughts. Start off with Amazon. Well, Amazon is probably the smartest player right now, and they they are one of the new media companies. You have Google, Facebook, uh, Netflix, um, uh, and Amazon. And Amazon is is essentially using Amazon Prime as a, a an inducement to buy products uh, through uh, Amazon's network uh, and and offering you uh, entertainment and and media content uh, that is actually terrific. And Amazon Prime now has a hundred million subscribers paying the same price as as uh, Netflix charges, and get and and the bonus is you get free shipping uh, if you buy anything through the Amazon network. So uh, they they're probably the most uh, uh, lucrative and potentially more, most profitable player in the new media world. Netflix. Netflix uh, has also got about a hundred million subscribers uh, uh, in the U.S. and they're growing. They're 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 static here, but they're growing globally because they they're new and they're they're offering uh, a, a unique product, a streaming product that hasn't been introduced in, in most of the rest of the world. So they will continue to grow, but financially or economically, Netflix is is not sustainable. The model that they have uh, is is uh, it's 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 a ticket to bankruptcy because they they own right now off balance sheet more than 20 billion dollars of liabilities for content that they're buying contracting or creating as original content and the subscriber base is not going to support that netflix will have to in my opinion uh introduce advertising which will all of a sudden send the subscriber uh, numbers through the floor. Wait, well, back up because this is actually quite a big deal. You're saying that Netflix's current business model is a ticket to bankruptcy yes. and that they are going to have to start advertising, at which point they will attract fewer users, which is not, well, uh, which isn't feasible. So in other words, they're bankrupt yeah. no matter what. In your uh, advertisers are going to drive subscribers away. Uh, so in it, other words, you think that they're doomed. I think that they're a target for acquisition by a, a Google, an Amazon, a Facebook, uh, or one of the telecoms. They they do not have economically a sustainable business model. But right now, it would be incredibly expensive for any of those behemoths to acquire Netflix, and they could potentially build out some of their own content. That's why nobody is making offers for Netflix, Another... because their stock price and the PE is so extraordinarily high. But that that uh, will not support uh, uh uh, high level uh, going forward. When do you think uh, this sort of hits a tipping point? Because so far people seem to have endless appetite for Netflix's debt and for anything that Netflix does. As as I, we're in a, a transition period right now, linear television is still attracting a significant audience and a, a huge amount of advertising, even though that advertising is in decline uh, the, and the cost per thousand is is plummeting as well but everybody is if you're a major advertiser and you want to reach a significant audience you're going to buy network television netflix is offering more and more television content and drawing away the audiences from 
the linear networks and and that's because it's 7.99 8.99 9.99 it's affordable and it and it's very easy to go in and out but nobody talks about the churn at netwick netflix they never release any numbers they don't uh really tell you how many people um use somebody else's password um there there are probably another 10 or 15% of people who don't pay for netflix and who won't if there's advertising that comes in so i i would say in the next 3 to 5 years you're going to see netflix hit the wall and then the stock price is going to come down and somebody's going to pick up the pieces Thank you very much for coming in and being with us. Porter Bibb is managing partner of Media Tech Capital Partners. You can follow him on Twitter at Porter3. All right, let's visit with someone who knows a lot about hedge funds and alternative investment strategies. Ron Biscardi is the co-founder and the chief executive of Context Capital Partners, and he joins us here in our studio. Ron, thanks very much for coming in. Thanks for having me, Pim. Tell people what is Context Capital Partners and just add in the summits that you put together so they understand that it's more than just a standalone company. Sure. So uh, Context Capital Partners is a an alternative investment specialist. Uh, we, in essence, launch and accelerate uh, alternative fund products. So we work in private equity structures, hedge fund structures. Uh, we launched a liquid alternatives platform a few years ago. And of course, uh, one of the centerpieces now of our entire business model is Context Summits, which is our conference uh, that focuses exclusively on capital introduction. So these are events where investors from around the world are coming together with hedge fund managers and uh, alternative managers to go through a one-on-one meeting format where they get to spend a half hour with each other and learn about each other and figure out if there's a match. And if there is, they can spend more time following the event. Speed dating, basically. Speed dating, Swipe yes. left, swipe <laughs> yes. right. Uh, as part of one of the recent conferences that you held, you did a survey, which I thought was pretty interesting. And uh, this conference was held uh, earlier this year in Barcelona, I believe. In, That's right. uh, and, and I thought that the, the results of this survey were fascinating because it showed that an increasing number of small family offices and wealthy individuals uh, are are gravitating toward new funds rather than the big established ones. And I thought that was interesting. Why? Can you talk a little bit about how pervasive this desire for smaller startups is? So I I, absolutely, I can tell you that what's been interesting uh, to watch is how each one of our summits events has grown over uh, the attendance in the prior year in the midst of one of the worst periods for hedge fund performance. And I think the reason for that is twofold. Number one, after the crash, you saw investors largely uh, flee to safety. Uh, they, They wanted to allocate into the asset class, but they only wanted to do so into the biggest funds. So the largest funds in the industry accumulated the vast majority of assets following the crash. And I think that has changed. I think investors are now more focused on returns. They're more focused on making sure they're getting alpha uh, with their investment. And that has led them to go downstream more towards uh, smaller funds. So this is interesting because a lot of people say that in this current environment, the idea of the big macro bet is losing its allure. It's also not performing particularly well on on average. So uh, is this sort of uh, indications, an indication that investors see more value in smaller funds? 
funds that can target specific smaller opportunities over bigger ones that are forced to go for go big or go home with large bets. <laughs> yeah, I think that's exactly what's happening. I, I, I think most investors believe that it is generally easier to find alpha and generate alpha in smaller, nichier strategies. And some of the, the top hedge funds in the world or largest hedge funds in the world, it's just like turning an aircraft carrier trying to run these things. So uh, they have obviously underperformed as a, as a group. And I think that's a big part of the driver behind investors coming downstream. Does any of your money go into any of these strategies? Oh, yes. I mean, in, in the core business uh, where we're launching and accelerating funds, we do a few things. First, we deploy capital. You know, that's largely why everyone wants to talk to us. Uh, and when you then, say deploy capital is that the people who you invite, you think are great and you've invested with them. Yeah. So in on the asset management side of the business, we are actually uh, accelerating and launching new fund products with the portfolio managers who run those funds. So our partner capital at Context goes into those those specific products. And then as necessary, we'll also wrap services around them so that they're institutional quality on day one, because that has also changed post-crash. Pre-crash, you could start in your apartment in this business with five or 10 million bucks and accumulate money over time. But nowadays, they really want to see a, a real business with compliance and technology and investment. Was that relations. the Jensen Partners uh, combination that you did? Uh, so Jensen, our partnership with Jensen was really about... Uh, sort of bringing another offering to this marketplace and adding to our ecosystem. So Jensen specializes in search for marketing executives in particular. And obviously all the funds who are attending our events are in the market trying to get better at marketing. So we thought that was a really nice complement to the summits business, providing that search capability as well. So what are some of the smaller niche businesses that are popular right now? Uh, so, you know, you can't look anywhere in the hedge fund industry without people talking about quant. I mean, it's really become uh, a must have in certain categories. And the, you know, whether there are small funds or big funds at our events, the quant strategies are collecting lots of meetings. You know, the, the average meeting count at our Miami flagship event in February was about 20. But the quant strategies, a lot of them were 30 to 35. Meeting like what, 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 would count as a quant strategy? I and mean, if they use an algorithm, does that mean that they could call themselves quants? Uh, I mean, you know, I guess at the simplest level, that's true. Uh, but uh, there are certain strategies where it's just it, it, a human can't compete with a computer. And I think if you don't have a quant capability uh, that you can demonstrate to investors that you have an expertise in, you're just not going to you're not going to accumulate capital. Do, do the investors understand the models? Generally speaking, probably not. So <laughs> no, like basically they're difficult. spinning the wheel here. They're basically saying, OK, you've handed me a document. Everybody has invested. We love you. We think you're very smart. You got 20 PhDs on staff. And by the way, here are your back tested results because I haven't been in business long enough. And go ahead. There's my money. So I, I think a, this came out of a, a survey we did in Miami. Investors really are focused on your investment process. To your point, Pim, they can't really evaluate the code. I mean, some are trying to hire 
software developers to actually dig into the code when the when the manager will let them. Uh, but in general, they're focused on an investment process because if you have a good process, you can weather lots of different markets. I think to look at just the performance of a backtest or anything like that in isolation is probably a mistake because every strategy will encounter a market where it doesn't work. And you need to know that the team is prepared to deal with that when it occurs. Just really quick, any emerging market strategies getting hot right now? Uh, so actually, in our, our uh, European survey, uh, there was more interest from investors just slightly in uh, developed market equities. Interesting. So uh, nothing that immediately comes to mind for me. Thank you so much for joining us. Ron Biscardi, co-founder and chief executive officer of Context Capital Partners and chief, uh, uh, basically, uh, couple maker between hedge funds and uh, big wealthy institutions. Uh, the allocator trends report on Europe from this year's uh, meeting is really quite interesting and demonstrates a lot of counterintuitive trends. I'm Lisa Abramowitz, along with Pim Fox. This is Bloomberg. Right now, I'm looking at a British pound versus the euro that is down at its weakest level since October 2016. This comes after uh, Bank of England's Mark Carney said basically the economy is at the mercy of Brexit and downgraded his expectations for growth. To get a little bit better perspective, I want to bring in Mark Chandler, global head of currency strategy at Brown Brothers Harriman in New York City. Uh, Mark, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, you know, we have seen this pervasive weakness in the pound, which is uh, pretty close at this point to the the lowest level since 2009 versus the euro. How much further can it weaken? That's a good question. I think that what we're seeing really is not just sterling weakness here or the dollar's weakness, but we're really seeing euro strength as well. For me, the, really, the move did not begin because of what happened in the U.K., but it really began in, in April when it became clear that this populist nationalist wave was not really sweeping across the world. It was primarily a U.S.-U.K. event, and that Europe was going to turn its back on it, and that's what happened as soon as it became clear that Macron was going to win. The euros took off and really hasn't looked back. And so this is still, for me, I think partly the euro overshoot. But, you know, back in uh, 2008, 2009, euro sterling got above 95. You just said that the euro that the euro has overshot. So you're expecting it to reverse at some point. Yes, I think that uh, what we saw, you know, the, you know, we, the, one of the big drivers now uh, that has put bottom on sterling was the softer than expected U.S. Uh, ISM for the service sector. Well, today the eurozone reported its weakest PMI composite uh, for basically uh, over a year. And so I think that uh, the McClellan story, and so the the, uh, the bloom is off the rose there. He, the honeymoon is over. I think we people have exaggerated uh, how how close the the ECB is to really exiting their policies. I know the the lead in you had you quoted someone uh, someone was talking from Bloomberg talking about how other central banks are getting are like signaling uh, that they also are getting done. But I think what we're going to get in September is the ECB to say that they're not done they're not done expanding their balance sheet this year, but they will continue to buy bonds perhaps at a slower pace through the first half of next year. U.S. balance sheet is going to be shrinking probably beginning in October. Fed, I think, uh, could raise rates again in December, could raise rates again early next year before the ECB even gets done with expanding their balance sheet or raising rates.
Hey, Mark, I'm wondering if you could explain who or what group of traders actually moves the needle when it comes to exchange rates. And I'm thinking about dollar euro right now because we're at 118. And if you've got this bid underneath bonds coming from the European Central Bank, you can make the argument that that's not a really natural uh, situation. Well, yeah, I mean, so... Yeah, I think it depends on the time frame that you're looking at. I often find, and that's why I track the uh, commitment of traders that you can use on uh, on Bloomberg ITST right. or the COT function. Because I think in the short term, uh, the speculators and uh, have a big role to play in sort of momentum traders, trend followers. But what's also happening this year, Pam, is that global investors, uh, the clients here at Brown Brothers, these are uh, real money. These are mutual funds, asset managers, unit trusts. And what these people have been doing uh, have been the big play has been buying European stocks on an unhedged basis and buying emerging market stocks. And so I think that, that those those portfolio flows are more of a medium term, uh, more more of a medium term driver. You know, Mark, it's it's interesting when you're talking about different flows. I have to think about recent data showing that foreign investors have increased their purchases of U.S. bonds in part because of the weaker dollar. It gives them a more attractive price point. And it makes me wonder at what point will that end up uh, causing more dollar strength just because if there is more demand flooding in, you would expect that to be a sort of corollary uh, uh, consequence. Yeah, no, you're right. I, I, that's, a, that's always the, the funny thing. I find when the closer, it's almost like for me, like an onion. And the closer I, I, the closer I look at it, take off a layer and peel back, I just have more layers. And I can't, so like very, I think money is very much mysterious like that, especially these flows. But in general, I think that the, the, the problem is that when the dollar is weak, like it is, like it has been in the last several months, foreign central banks typically buy the dollar from the pri- basically buying it from the private sector. And so central bank ownership of treasuries, which is going up, is another important function that you have on Bloomberg where you can track the Federal Reserve as a custodian for foreign central banks. And their holdings of treasuries and mortgage-backed securities has been going up quite sharply this year. Particularly for China and Japan. China and Japan, but also, it, you know, I'm not sure in these, uh, we see that in the tick data, but in the Federal Reserve custody, we don't really, it's not public who, which central banks use the Federal Reserve as a custodian. I personally would be surprised if China was a big user of the Federal Reserve's custodial services. But in any event, it's true that central banks have been buying more treasuries, and they've been buying them because the market wants to sell them. The market wants to sell the dollars, and the central banks accumulate those dollars and put them in the treasuries. We've got to leave it there, but I want to thank you very much. Mark Chandler, Global Head of Currency Strategy, Brown Brothers Harriman. He can be followed on Twitter at Mark Making Sense. I want to turn now to trade between the United States and China. And Caitlin Weber, our government analyst for global trade policy for Bloomberg Intelligence. Caitlin, thank you very much for being with us. Tell us the, the current state of U.S.-China trade relations and what is at stake for both sides. Well, at this point, we're really seeing um, that relationship has deteriorated a lot really over the last month or so. It's interesting because in the first six months of the year, um, it looked like the relationship was improving. Trump, The Trump administration declined to name China a currency manipulator after threatening to do so on the campaign trail. The Trump Trump administration really linked um, that trade relationship uh, with China um, 
ostensibly trying to help ease tensions on the Korean Peninsula, try to rein in uh, Pyongyang. Over the past month, um, after we saw North Korea test two intercontinental ballistic missiles, you saw the you saw President Trump come out and say you were disappointed in China that they haven't been successful in sort of controlling North Korea more. Um, we think that we could potentially see some actions on trade, and so um, there are a couple of investigations that have already been launched on steel and aluminum against that really target China. And over the past couple of days, there's been there's been a lot of reporting that there will be potentially another investigation launched this time going after alleged Chinese violation of U.S. intellectual property. Uh, well, Caitlin, I'd love to get some details on the progress that U.S. officials have made on this whole Buy America Steel plan uh, that President Trump has touted. I mean, how far along are we on that type of initiative or has it fallen by the wayside? It seems to have fallen by the wayside, at least in the attention that it's getting. When that when that proposal was announced, uh, back, um, I think it was in April, it was, you know, there was a lot of news around it, a lot of excitement from the U.S. steel industry. Um, this is a plan to include steel in all U.S. pipelines. Now, the Commerce Department was supposed to provide a report to the president um, on the status of that plan just um, in the last week or so. And we didn't hear really a peep out of the Commerce Department or the president on the results of that review. Um, so I, I think at this at this point, it seems like that you know, that um, plan may have stalled. And I think you're seeing a lot of frustration from the U.S. steel industry into not seeing more results around that plan and around a a larger investigation um, targeting imported U.S. steel that's often referred to as Section 233. They're really hoping for more action to, to take on these surging steel imports. And they're just at this point, not getting it from right. the Trump administration. You know, I'm wondering also what pressure President Trump faces from, say, representatives from Louisiana and Tennessee. There are two uh, extremes on either side of the uh, spectrum here because Louisiana exports a lot of soybeans to China and has a positive uh, trade balance with China, whereas Tennessee has an extreme negative one and is importing a lot of things and would suffer from any tax uh, that the U.S. would put on Chinese goods. I mean, are, are congressmen or uh, other representatives, maybe governors, getting up in arms at all about this? There's a lot of consensus in in Congress and among the business community um, in support for the Trump administration going after China's alleged violation of U.S. Um, intellectual property. Um, that's been a complaint for a really long time. There's a lot of consensus around something needs to be done. So we need to do something to rein in China, um, basically stealing our IP. What there is not a lot of agreement on is what the U.S. should do, you know, what sort of actions we should take in order to compel China to do that. Um, and, you know, as you mentioned, if, if these talks do fail and the U.S. decides to impose tariffs on Chinese imports and China responds in kind, there will be, um, you know, collateral damage potentially. Um, the U.S. is so dependent on China for consumer goods, for, for phones and computers, um, that, you know, sort of a, a broad uh, action against Chinese imports would probably not be very politically popular. Um, so, you know, a lot of consensus around something needs to be done, not a lot of agreement on what exactly we should target and how we should make sure that China isn't going after our exports. 
Just quickly, give you about 20 seconds. What's next? What do we need to pay attention to? So let's look for um, the Trump administration's messaging on this so-called Section 301 investigation into IP. Um, let's look to see whether or not they're going to promise them some deliverables on that in the next three months. So far this year, it's been a lot of investigations, a lot of talks, but not a lot of action. We need to see if they're actually going to promise deadlines in terms of delivering some, some new limits or some new restrictions. Caitlin Weber, thank you so much for joining us. A truly important topic that we will continue to uh, discuss in the weeks and months to come. Caitlin Weber is government analyst uh, covering global trade policy for Bloomberg Intelligence. And uh, definitely the rhetoric, at least, is definitely ratcheting up between China and the U.S. with respect to its trade relationship. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.